Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 265 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast, or episode 6 of 2020. I am Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man whose son understands how much better baseball is than cricket, Chris Roche. Hey, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Robin. It is Friday. Uh, what day is it? It is Friday, November 13th. Ooh, it is Friday, November 13th. And uh, we are recording in the early evening, which means I have a gin and tonic poured and I have already started sipping on it. Uh, Chris, what are you drinking right now? I'm drinking Huma Looper Licious, which is a splendid IPA made by a local Michigan brewery. Yeah, it sounds... Is that shorts? Yeah, it is, yeah. They are an excellent brewery. Mm-hmm. I am a yeah. big fan of... Uh, they have a they have one called Soft Parade, which is a very lovely beverage, if, if you ask me. Excellent. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. There it is. Yeah, this is going to be a festive podcast. And it's going to be a festive podcast for several reasons um, that we'll get into. Um, uh, there's a young Brit by the name of L. Hamilton, um, or some people may know him as Lewis H., uh, that I'm sure we're going to discuss. But today, we're going to talk about the results of the Portugal and Italian Grands Prix, as well as a bit of the silly season news and all those kinds of things. And uh, I also do want to talk a bit about... IndyCar, uh, a champion was crowned there. Scott Dixon is the six-time champion of IndyCar, and uh, there's a few things to talk about there. But, Chris, where should we start? Um, well, Portimao turned out to be win 92 for Lewis. It's probably a pretty good place. Which is a record-setting uh, race for him. He is now the sole uh owner of the most race wins in the history of Formula One, Lewis Hamilton, with 92 wins. A 35% win record, highest in the in the top 10 of, of winners in Formula One. Just, just a quick stat for you. It's just incredible. I mean, you know, we, we could probably spend an hour talking about just that, but, you know, here we are. He's 35 years old, Lewis is. And obviously still in peak form it's virtually it's 99.9 percent his choice what team he wants to go to next year what achievements he wants to have going forward these types of things but we're in this weird place where uh, mathematically speaking it's either lewis or valtteri botas that wins the driver's championship mercedes has already won the constructor's championship he has uh, the world on his fingertips in many, many ways. So it's going to be interesting to see just how far he takes these record books and when he decides he wants to hang up his helmet. When Michael Schumacher retired the first time around, he was 36. So it's going to be interesting to see. Lewis is starting to get into that age, and it'll be interesting to see where he goes with it. I have a feeling he's going to keep racing for a while. Well, I, yeah, I was thinking about that. What do you, where do you think he can take the record to? So if he signs another three-year deal with Mercedes, which is not, not, not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination, but I could see him winning maybe another... If Mercedes deliver a good car with the reg change, which is pretty likely, I could see him getting up to like 
115 wins. I feel like there is got to be at least a small part of him that is itching to get more than 100 wins. I feel like that is a number that he would really like. I also think that an eighth championship sounds awfully tasty to him. From there, you the logic would be stay with Mercedes. However, I do also think there is going to be some emotional pull to show that he and he alone can bring Ferrari back to greatness, things like that. But since Ferrari has Leclerc, I'm not as confident in that anymore. So I I don't know. I could see it going a few different ways. I have a feeling when all the dust settles, he's going to end up continuing on as a Mercedes driver uh, for at least a couple more years. That would be my guess. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't see him going to Ferrari. I think he'll retire with Mercedes, become a Mercedes ambassador, and uh, and you know go and do whatever else he's going to do. But let's talk about win records for a second because I remember when Schumacher took the record and he pushed it out to you know 91, and it seemed unbeatable. Um, and there were a lot of people who then assumed he was the greatest driver of all time, which I never agreed with because I think it's just more than just pure you know it's not, not just a pure statistical game is it it's not just based on how many the numbers themselves and we'll come on to that in a minute but you know it was amazing so Stuart had the record until uh, uh, at 27 wins up until 1987 huh. <laughs> and then that's amazing Prost, yeah and then Prost took it off him and pushed pushed it out of fifty one, which seemed like a big number, right? Because you you think about before Prost did that, a lot of there were quite a few in the twenties, but there was no one no one above that. And then well, Fangio sudden, was twenty five, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. And then you know Schumacher obviously just took it uh, and ran with it to a to a dimension I think nobody expected it to ever be matched. Um, I mean, it is staggering when you look at it. So. 92 wins is the same number of wins as Prost and Senna combined and they're on number 4 and number 5 on the all time win list I mean they're just ridiculous numbers but what really struck me was if you look at win percentage so Hamilton's not number 1 he's he's actually number 3 in the all time list do you know who's ahead of him? isn't Fangio? Fangio and Ascari, one and two. Those are some pretty cool names. Jim Clark is number four. Yeah. So, you know, it's some some pretty legendary names right there. So it just shows you, right? There's a lot of facets to consider. Um, who is, who's been the greatest in any era, let alone of all time? But uh, it is cool that he's managed to get there. Obviously, having a wonderful car for all these seasons with Mercedes has, has been a, a massive factor in that. But then all these guys at the top of the list all had great cars for long periods of time. So, Exactly right. I mean, and it's, it's, such, a, it's such an odd push-pull. And I think that Schumacher um, is, not, is oftentimes not given enough credit because he, clearly he was impressively quick. I think that it's really hard for people to remember Schumacher's true in talent because he came back in 2010 and had that three years with Mercedes. And I think maybe he got one podium, but failed to win, of course. Uh, and that kind of 
kind of dampened people's impressions of him. But what he was able to achieve with was he was impressively quick, but he was also impressively disciplined, hardworking, and able to get a team around him. And I think that that is, while not a pure feel of the limit of a race car, that is an extremely important talent in being a top-level racing driver. And I think Schumacher certainly uh, was the benchmark for that talent. Yeah, I mean, he took uh, the level of professionalism required to be successful in the sport of Formula One to another level, didn't he? And, uh, you know, the, the drivers that have followed him, people like Alonso, Vettel, Hamilton, you know, they've all had to, to match that, that new bar in order to be successful. Well, and that's just it. I think that Hamilton has matched it and even surpassed it in many ways because what Hamilton has done is he took the Schumacher model and made it more of, I don't want you to favor me in terms of equipment, things like that. I want it to be even, but I'm still going to work really hard to have the team coalesce around me, and then I'm going to prove my speed on merit. And I think what he does is through that appreciation of the team, he gets so much moral support around the team and builds up the team's morale in a more open-door kind of way, less competitive kind of way that is really hard to argue with. I feel like he is, uh, to kind of put on my MBA hat for a second, he's like a servant leader. It's like, what can I do to make you do your job better? And uh, and I think that he he comes across as extremely appreciative, extremely appreciative of hard work and at the same time encouraging more hard work. And I think he, I think Hamilton does that better than just about anybody I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to obviously round 13 at Imola when Mercedes managed to clinch their seventh championship. Uh, but there was a lot of interviews with the team and sort of asking how they managed to be so successful over such a period and one of the things that James Allison mentioned was that you know when Hamilton's in the car that is the level of the car right he's pretty much going to extract everything out of it and if the car's slow it's not due to the driver it's due to the engineers and he says you know that that really helps to spur them all on and he does I mean the amount of credit he gives to the team both back at the factory and at the race um, you know, it, it, it is pretty amazing to, to, to see what a unified group they, uh, they are, and, and that's clearly leading to the success they're all collectively having. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But um, I feel like we might be getting ahead of ourselves just a touch. Um, I would yeah, let's, talk about, let's talk about Portimao. What a great track. I have been lucky enough. I've, I've been to that track a couple of times. Um, yeah. to drive um, uh, more uh, sporting variants of uh, road cars out there. I drove the uh, Jaguar. Um, what? Sorry? The Jaguar. Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, the Jag-U-R. 
Uh, Let's just call it a jag. The XE Project 8, an absolutely manic, massive, marvelous machine. I drove that at Portimao, and I oh, drove nice. nothing uh, short of brilliant the Porsche 911 GT2 RS there. And uh, that circuit is one of the best in the world. It's just absolutely fantastic. You were never on level ground. You were just ascending or descending. Sometimes you're on camber. Sometimes you're off. The corners are just well-placed. It's it's just a beautiful, incredible, impressive place. And I thought that it really tested the limits of a Formula One car as well. And you're, you're, you've got blind entry corners, right? You're basically oh, going over. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the... the and it's, I think it's probably hard to see, especially because um, you get a lot of helicopter shots. Um, the main straight is nice and long and fast, and you go in this, you know, in the Formula One car, it's flat. Last corner, lean on to the main straight. The braking zone is downhill into a, a right-hander turn one. And uh, so you have to you have to brake. The braking zone is blind until you're going incredibly quickly. And then you're breaking downhill and turning to the right. The apex, once you hit the entry point, the apex isn't blind. But, uh, you know, it's hairy. And, uh, and there's definitely a lot of blind, uh, blind entries and overcrest moments and things like that. It definitely is uh, three-dimensional in terms of vehicle dynamics. Well, and it gave, us, it gave us some pretty exciting racing, especially for the first few laps, right? Absolutely. And I was just so impressed that Formula went, Formula One went. I thought the track delivered excellent racing. And then I was just immediately sad as soon as I saw the 21 calendar and that Bordemau wasn't on there yet again. Yeah. I want it to be a permanent fixture. And obviously, I know that these things, these things don't just happen like that. But if there's a way to lobby Formula One to get Bordemau back into the groove i would absolutely love that because i think it delivered yeah i think so i mean it was a cracking cracking opening few laps where we had the carlos Sainz basically drive what where did he qualify he was down in seventh managed to get in the lead on the first lap yeah driving past hamilton and botas and, and incredible company. it was it was uh, it was pretty good fun Incredible, incredible and, racing. And Kimi, Kimi Raikkonen from 16th to 6th was pretty epic as well. Raikkonen is proof that 40, and uh, he is now 41, is not too old to be a race car driver, and nothing makes me happier to know that Raikkonen is racing again next year. Well, look, Fangio is still one of the all-time greats, and he raced into his 50s, so we've all known that, Robin. Well, and uh, this is not Formula One precisely, but, you know, uh, Mario Andretti raced IndyCar until he was 54. There you go. So there's still time for me to get there, then, is what you're saying. Absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> I think that, uh, I think that uh, you just have to wait till your son reaches a good age to be, you know, part of the, be your engineer, and then you can... Uh, and you can have a family team. Perfect. Yeah, just like he does. There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's such a shame because the results of Portimao were scripted. You know, Lewis Hamilton mm -hmm. wins, Valtteri Bottas second, Max Verstappen third. But that absolutely did not reflect the race and how, 
and how impressive it was. And then we had the mixed weather conditions, and we had some different theories on tire, um, how to run tires throughout the race. And, uh, and that's where we saw some really wonderful opening lap moves by, like you said, by Carlos Sainz and Kimi Raikkonen. And, uh, yeah, it was such a, it was a good race. And also Charles, uh, Leclerc ended up putting the Ferrari fourth. That was an impressive, that was an impressive run for the Ferrari and fourth place. He was also the last one on the lead lap. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the top four on qualifying finished in that order in the race. Ham, Botas, Verstappen, and Leclerc, and and so you look at the results, you think what a dull race, but it was anything but. I mean, it was uh, it was pretty pretty exciting. As I said, Science was leading lap one, finished sixth. You had uh, Perez who had a you know storming race after clashing with Verstappen on lap one, uh, managed to make his way from the back of the field up to seventh. So there was there was overtaking. There was um, you know, but unfortunately, the natural order as it often does in in formula one the fastest guys and the fastest drivers work their way to the front over the course of 60 odd laps so uh that's what happened but it was pretty entertaining 66 66 uh, there we go thank yeah. you but I, let's let's talk about that for a second is sergio perez going to be a red bull driver no he's already talking about taking a year off isn't he he deserves to be Good God. I mean, he's, I he's, he's become so... He's a very good. He's a very complete racing driver. I don't know why he's not with the top team right now. I don't think Perez will get within half a second of Verstappen. That's mm. my honest belief. I think, I think Alex Albon is underperforming, and he's had some atrocious races. But I don't think... You know, there's only a couple of people you're going to put in a Red Bull that's going to get close to Verstappen, and it isn't going to be Perez. That is so odd to me because just last podcast, last podcast, you were <laughs> arguing for Perez putting more pressure on Verstappen. That was exactly your point of view that Perez would not be as he would not be as bothered by the hype. He would not be as intimidated um, by Verstappen as much, and that he would put more pressure on Verstappen than most anybody out there. And you've changed and I've changed my mind. <laughs> changed my mind. Is it, Honestly. Is it, is it the, the IPA talking? Please, expand on this. I think there's something about, uh, clearly Verstappen is a real, real talent. And I think that will be borne out through the course of his career. He's going to win quite a few championships, I suspect. And I think well, he's, he's going to be... He's going to be in third place in a, at least a couple more, but and, uh, maybe I, after that. Yeah, and I think it's it's the, the characteristics of that 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 car, and Verstappen's talent means it's going to be extremely hard for anyone else to get in that and get, you know, within within half a second. Consistently, I mean, Gasly, Gasly's had a couple of astonishingly good races. Gasly was fourth on the grid in Imola, right? He finished fifth in Portimao. He's quick. And yet, he was nowhere in the Red Bull. And Albon has demonstrated pace, not recently, but he has over the, over, since he's been in that chassis, but still can't get within half a second of Verstappen. Verstappen is freakishly fast in that car. I think that you're right, but at the same time, I think that that also... I think that that is telling 
of the Red Bull structure. I think there is something to the fact that once Red Bull picks a lead driver, there is some there's some sort of undercurrent, however undetectable it is to uh, the standard observer like ourselves, that puts the second that puts the second driver in an awkward position and puts them under pressure that makes it that much harder for them to perform because him having the pace he does is impressive but you know Lewis Hamilton I don't think you would argue that Verstappen is faster than Hamilton I, I'm, I'm assuming you wouldn't and Lewis Hamilton has Botas a very solid driver in his own right Lewis Hamilton has Botas a tenth behind him, sometimes sometimes a few hundreds in front of him. You know, it's competitive. And I don't think that it's because Botas is that fast and it's just super close. I think it's there's some structure within the Red Bull team that takes the lead driver and escalates him. And somehow, even if it's purely emotionally, demotes the second driver to a place that it's harder for them to recover. Because it's not just Pierre Gasly or Alex Albon. It's also Daniel Kofiat. It's also um, it's also uh, Mark Webber, if you go farther back in time. Daniel Ricciardo and Carlos... Well, Carlos Sainz was never in the top team. Daniel Ricciardo was the only one that was in a place that was competitive. And I think that... That was before Verstappen was kind of like the undisputed lead driver of the team. I I was enjoying watching some vintage uh, Turkish Grand Prix footage earlier where Vettel and Weber crashed into each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, look, let's let's talk about Perez. I think he's a great midfield driver, but has he ever been significantly quicker than his teammate, with the exception of Stroll? I mean, he wasn't any quicker than Ocon, was he? And Ocon's having his pants pulled down by uh, by our friend Daniel Ricciardo this season. So, I mean, you really think... And we know Verstappen's quicker than Ricciardo. Therefore, ergo, Verstappen would be quicker than Perez. I don't, I'm not saying that Perez would come in to be the new lead driver of the team, but he would be, he would be an established veteran that would drive consistently... How has this happened? We flip flopped here. <laughs> last podcast, so, <laughs> last podcast, you were arguing for, and I was saying mm, I don't know, and now I'm saying I've come around to this, and you're saying Nah, I don't know. So what happened? What happened since you and I last spoke that we I don't swapped know, roles here? Is this a, a movie? Good question. Did we were we did we look in kind of some kind of magic mirror and now we swapped bodies <laughs> or something? Because you're right. I mean. Uh, Perez had a great drive in Portugal, and he had a great drive in Imola, and and Albon conversely was dire in both Grand Prix. I, I'm not arguing that Albon's done any favours for himself to keep that seat, but I also think that you've got to, as a Red Bull team, look at the sort of long term and and fundamentally realise that you do have this issue that you just pointed out that you seem to be. Saying, perennially favouring one driver and try and resolve it with one driver and keep, you know, constantly switching drivers out that could be faster or could be slower um, doesn't seem to be helping them. So I think you've got to, you just got to take a long-term view and fundamentally resolve it. Yeah, no, there's no argument there. Uh, I just, I think it's a shame 
that someone of Perez's quality wouldn't end up in the seat. What about um, what about Hulkenberg? Then he's his name has been brought up a few times as well for the Red Red Bull seat. That one to me seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, I think I don't think Hulk's coming back to F one other than the, as a super sub. To be honest, um, and you know it was interesting. Yeah, I mean Perez has made it up to where is he in the championship? He's he's doing pretty well, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. He's sixth. 82 points and he missed two Grand Prix That's and right. his, he was commenting that you know the the racing point was particularly strong at Silverstone which may have flattered uh, our friend Hulk I, I don't know I, the, the, the Formula 1 fraternity they, they sort of move on don't they collectively and decide someone's past their prime and, and they put them out to pasture uh, and I think that's unfortunately what's happened to Nico and I think it's what's happening also to uh, to Perez yeah, man, that 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 to me is a shame. I think Perez, this last year and this year is when he's finally hit his prime. That's the irony of this, of all of this. Maybe I'm aging myself here. Well, but let answer the question: Who is he outpaced in in the same car? Lance Stroll. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna drop the mic right there. He outpaced the son of the owner of the car of the of the team. Tell me what's more impressive than that. Yeah, I mean Has Hamilton ever beat young uh young Mercedes the third? No. No. So Toto Wolf's offspring, you reckon <laughs> isn't in the car? For Hamilton to really be tested, <laughs> Stroll, Stroll should just be made the reserve driver, should be, and they bring, they leave Perez where he is. Can I just say, let's just take a step back. Let's, I, and I want to hear from the listeners of the podcast as well. IPA drinking Christopher Rose is much better than non-IPA Christopher Rose. This oh, is, this is, this is just a, this is a hands down knockout success here. I, I'm very much enjoying this. You're disagreeing with yourself so much. <laughs> and, this is a great she, beer for a Friday afternoon. I, I want to I, say I that. Just, I, I just, I applaud it immensely. So let's, you and I talk about how much better IndyCar is than Formula One now, because I have a feeling you're going to agree with me. IndyCar. We might be, I might be wrong on that one. <laughs> IndyCar is so much better than Formula One. Don't you agree, Chris? Tell me. Talk to me about how terrible the Formula One drivers are compared to the IndyCar drivers. So why didn't Scott Dixon ever get a shot in F1 then, do you think? Scott, what does he think? Did you ask him that question? I did, in fact. Uh, Scott Dixon is now the sixth-time IndyCar champion. He is second all-time in uh, the list of champions. Uh, the very American Texan, A.J. Foyt, has won the championship seven times. Um, Dixon has now won 50 races in IndyCar. That puts him third in the all-time championship uh, there. He is behind Mario Andretti, who has won 52 races, and again, A.J. Foyt, who has won, I believe, the number is 68. Scott Dixon is damn good. He's an extremely fast driver. When Scott Dixon won his first championship in 2003, he was given a Formula One test with Williams. And, uh, and I think that was in early 2004. And there were discussions 
although I don't think it ever actually happened for him to also test for Ferrari. Long story short, and this... So let's hang on, wait, wait, wait. I'm yeah. just trying to imagine in my mind Williams circa 2003-04. So we're talking BMW Williams, we're talking Ralph right. Schumacher, Juan Pablo Montoya, some pretty good quality drivers. Well, and I believe the test was in 04, so I, the seat might have been for 2005, which would have been Mark Webber. Hmm. And I think the way things played out, there was politicking going on through BMW. This is the claim from Stefan Johansson, who is now, um, who is a former Formula One driver and is now Scott Dixon's manager. And BMW refused to have a rookie in the car at Williams. But apparently, as, as it was described to me, the Williams test went very, very well. But the offer was to be a reserve slash test driver, not a racing driver for the first year. And at the exact same time, Chip Ganassi of Chip Ganassi Racing said, hey, Scott, here's a whole ton of money, big ton of money. Why don't you stay at IndyCar and keep racing? And Scott Dixon said, sure. And uh, that was kind of that was kind of the end of that. So was he offered a, a reserve role with a seat? the following year or no guarantee of a seat i we did not get into the into the nitty-gritty you didn't get into the things. contract minutiae come on Robbie. i know i know <laughs> had i had another ipa that you're drinking lord knows i would have uh, i would have known that and his uh, his mother's maiden name but uh his social security number one <laughs> exactly right but uh you know he listen he, i as an american i feel that uh, far too many Europeans give IndyCar uh, too little credit for driver talent. And no. I, yes. And I think that Scott Dixon absolutely would have been very, very competitive in Formula One. And Stefan Johansson went on the record. Um, this was the uh, Beyond the Grid podcast um, uh, that... Uh, Stefan Johansson said that he firmly believes that given the right opportunities, Scott Dixon would have been world champion in Formula One. And I think I I think that he's a consummate professional and I think that he would have done very well. He's the type of guy, Scott Dixon is, that he looks he he's a complete driver. He looks at everything. He looks <clears throat> he takes close look at the detail. He can get deep and technical into things he can uh, he can drive the car to save fuel he can drive the car for pure speed he can drive the car for longevity of the equipment he's very good at adapting to circumstances uh, that are most in- important for the um, the circumstances that are presented by him he had this so I interviewed Scott Dixon um, after his sixth championship win and he had this great great line where I, you know, we talked about, you know, racing a different way to save fuel and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you got to have all the tools, man. There's a lot of different ways to win a race. And the more tools you have, the better off you are. So he he really thinks through and plays out like, okay, there's all these different scenarios that can happen. How to react? How do we react to those various scenarios to maximize our chances of winning? And he was always very much, he's always very much been the, 
how can I do better at the next race? He's very, he's very good at compartmentalizing and just thinking about, okay, this is the next race. This is the next race. How do we maximize the next race? And by doing that, you know, championships and records and all those things come naturally. And I think that's really easy to say, but I think Scott Dix is one of those people that can actually truly get in that mental state and uh, and deliver that way. And the third thing I say about him is that he's one of those guys that you can tell genuinely, truly, absolutely loves what he's doing. And he just, he, he wants to keep racing because he likes racing. And it's kind of, that's the long and short of it. No, I think he's a tremendous race driver. I mean, to, to stay at the top of such a competitive formula for so many years and to be so successful on, on all those different types of courses, I mean, you know, this, this high-speed ovals, 19th, short ovals. This was his 19th full IndyCar season that he finished. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. I mean, what I will say is that IndyCar has, you know, it has had a checkered past in terms of, having drivers migrate from IndyCar to Formula One and some have been very successful and some have been a disaster and unfortunately that's sort of uh, it, the disasters have, have damaged the reputation of, of the quality of IndyCar drivers I think. Yeah, no, um, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I just w the the key is is that a fair is that a fair assessment or not? And no, I don't, I don't think it is because, I mean, you look yeah. at, I mean, obviously your favorite driver, Villeneuve, came from IndyCar, yeah, was very successful. Yes, and then, yes and then, I, I idolize him. You've seen my shrine. <laughs> and then Montoya, I always, I mean, I was a huge fan of Juan Pablo. I mean, he was, he was I reckon, given a short, you know, a bum deal in Formula One because I think he should have won a championship in F1. But, uh, you know, he was epic. And then, you know, Zanardi had a couple of cracks at it and... Um, with mixed results, but I think, you but know, people like Michael Andretti Zinardi, didn't really help. Zanardi yeah. was Formula One, IndyCar, Formula One. Zanardi mm -hmm. started in Formula One, went to IndyCar, and then went back to Formula One. But the trouble, the trouble was, in Zanardi's case, right, he annihilated everyone when he was in IndyCar. He was so far ahead, he made everyone else look a little bit stupid, didn't he? And then when he came out to Formula One, he was middling again. I mean, that's, that's where the problems start to come in, as to how much, yeah, how, how competitive it really is as a series. But, I mean, to be fair there, I mean, where did he race in Formula One? He was like at Arrows and stuff, right? When yeah, well, he raced for Williams. He did have Williams in the in in the in the latter part of the nineties when Williams was still a good team. He, he raced didn't... he raced for Chip Ganassi. Uh -huh. He raced for Chip Ganassi when Chip Ganassi um, was one of the. I mean, obviously Ganassi is still one of the top teams. That's Scott Dixon's teams. Chip Ganassi was a very dominant team in the nineties. Um, um, Jimmy Vassar won the championship in nineteen ninety six. And then Alex Zanardi came in and won it in 97, 98. And then Juan Pablo Montoya won it in 99. So those were all Ganassi cars, a top, top team. So, it, you know, it was basically Ganassi was the guy. Ganassi had Penske running for it at the time, uh, chasing him at the time. So Ganassi was in that era. Ganassi was kind of the Ferrari. Um, you know, they or were the, the Mercedes. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. What am I doing? They were the Mercedes of the late '90s, so uh, you know that's what's uh, that's what has to be kept in mind. And like you know, 
Cristiano D'Amato, he he did really well uh, for Toyota and IndyCar. He was on the Toyota Formula One team, but again, the Toyota Formula One car was very iffy. Um, and you know, it's gone the other way, where you've had guys like uh, Esteban Gutierrez. He wasn't very good in Formula One. He didn't do well in IndyCar either. You know, and um, well, but Sebastian Bourdais is the classic, isn't it? I mean, Bourdais had some seasons in IndyCar where you know he completely dominated yes but yet he was never outstanding in formula one and he's had a couple of cracks at it but again I mean, and I that's mean, where I'm, the issues I'm, come in i think but again okay so bourdais he did very very well but he was with newman haas and newman haas was the top top team of that era newman haas um is where um uh oh shoot newman haas had uh uh it's but anyway Newman Haas was the top team for a long time and that's where Bourdais was doing really really well and won championships and then where did Bourdais go to he went to um you know uh what is now Alpha Touri right he was uh he was at the Red Bull Juju team effectively and uh, when Sebastian Vettel won the race for um, for uh, for oh god, I don't know why Alpha Tori's old name is escaping me now. Um, uh, Salba Toroso Toroso. Oh, yeah. Um, so you're right. Um, why, Dear um, yeah, IPA is IPA Chris is the best. <laughs> oh, just, dear lord. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> when 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 Sebastian Vettel won. Uh, in Monza for uh, Toro Rosso, um, Bourdais was in the in the other car, and I think he finished fourth. So it's not so like slower he, then. So slower, slower, but <laughs> n- but not a slouch by any means. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, but the point is, is that his domination in in IndyCar looked made him look like a really outstanding driver. And then when he came into F1, he looked average again. I think that's what then put a. The, the, the other drivers in the formula into perspective so if the outstanding guy is only middling when he comes to formula one you're not going to pick any of the other drivers are you and i think it was actually bourdais that ruined it for the rest of the indycar <laughs> drivers because since then who's come over from indycar no i, I think see, it's, i disagree with that because i've seen it so that was the point i was getting at gutierrez came over and he was nowhere in indycar just like he was nowhere in um in Formula One, and, well, and um, Chilton, yeah, Max Chilton, exactly right. And there was another one. I think he was Norwegian or Swedish. And Eric Ericsson, yeah. yes, Marcus Ericsson. Mm-hmm. Same thing. He went to IndyCar, not didn't do didn't fare any better. What happened was the reputation was set in 1993 by Michael Andretti. <laughs> Michael Andretti went up against Iart and Senna of all people. And Michael Andretti had this crazy schedule where he barely tested the car. He still lived in the U.S. and he basically flew to Europe for the races on the weekends. It was a disaster in terms of uh, of logistics and planning. That was where the disaster was, and I think well, that's what no. set the stone for IndyCar. Because well, no, I mean, you're right. That was an unmitigated disaster. But subsequently, you had Villeneuve, Montoya. You had Villeneuve number- won the championship. Yes, in '97, after the debacle of Michael Schumacher, uh, not Michael Schumacher, Michael Andretti. 
Right? So, I mean, that redeemed IndyCar's reputation, surely. Oh, okay, fine. I mean, if you think so. I'm, <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, I'm listening. But, uh... I, I mean, look, you can't... You may not like the guy. And, and I don't, particularly. But the, the, his record is pretty decent in both IndyCar and Formula One. You have to admit that. Yes, I do have to admit that. And I do begrudgingly admit that. <laughs> What I I think I think Villeneuve I think Villeneuve had talent, and uh, I'm sure he's a lovely person. And I hear he's a I hear he's a fantastic country singer. So they're just the compliments just keep on coming. Should we move anyway? Well done, well done, Scott. Tremendous, tremendous performance. Should we move on to round thirteen at Imola before we get ourselves into trouble? Yeah, I, as long as you promise to have another IPA, because this is fantastic. Um, <laughs> I didn't think Imola was very good. Um, oh, I thought it was great. I, yeah, I mean, it was outstanding. I mean, Hamilton um, wins again. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, it was another Mercedes 1 2. It was Hamilton's 93rd victory. And more importantly to me in many ways, it was uh, another podium for Daniel Ricciardo, which I really appreciated. Um, and Hamilton did a shoey with him. Yeah. That's a highlight. Yeah, that was, uh, that was I, think, I think the word I'd use for that is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shoey out of someone else's shoe. Uh, no, no thank you, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean, that, that track proved incredibly difficult to pass on. Even with the DRS system, a lot of a lot of guys couldn't get it done. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a track conducive to overtaking, was it? I mean, and unfortunately, I mean, I remember Imola back in the days before the chicanes, uh, and they were put in for good reason, of course. But it's not the same track, and it, its character has been uh, you know changed significantly. And uh, you know, it's old school. It's it's narrow. It's quite entertaining in some aspects, but yeah, it's not really suitable for modern Formula One. I don't think. Real quick, I mean, okay, Portimao versus Imola. Which one would you rather have on the calendar on a regular basis? Oh yeah, Portimao for sure. Yes. And then and and then the other Italian track, whose name escapes me, that we went to earlier in the Magella. year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. IPA Chris is so fantastic. This is, I, <laughs> I feel smarter. You're you're making different arguments. This is great. I love this. I, I th we should make this a rule. IPAs for every podcast. Anyway, so seventh championship for Mercedes, a new record. The previous one held by Ferrari from ninety nine to oh four. Um, yeah. I, so I did I did a little bit of research on the championships for the constructors. So it was introduced in fifty eight. So it came after the the drivers' championship. First yep, one in nineteen fifty eight by Van War. By Van War. Which I, which I did not know. That was that was fascinating. Yeah, Van Wall, so, They were and they were the first <clears throat> time that a, a British because they uh, they won the drivers' championship. I forget. Uh, they won the constructors' championship. The fifty-eight drivers' championship is escaping me now. Yeah, it wasn't by a Van Wall driver. I don't think. No, it wasn't. Uh, I think it was a Ferrari driver actually. But wasn't it? it was. It was the first. It was the Van Wall was proof that the English could compete against the Italians because up until 58, it was basically dominated by Alphas, Maseratis, and Ferraris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. 
And uh, and that was the beginning of what now is, you know, we still have, if I'm correct, seven, seven of the ten teams are based in England. We have um, we have two in Italy and one in Switzerland, and the rest are in England. That's right. I mean, they race under a lot of different flags, but that is uh, they all yeah they all have bases there. But so 130 teams have competed in the Formula One World Championship. Fifteen of them managed to win constructors' uh, titles, and only nine more than once. So uh, hmm. yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. I mean, Ferrari. Uh, won it three times back in the 70s Williams three times in the 90s Red Bull four times in the from 10 to 13 and then uh, McLaren four times in the late 80s early 90s well hold on um, Ferrari won it six times in a row from 99 six, through 04 yeah that's right and that, that was, was the previous Red Bull <clears throat> yeah yeah I was just go- sorry I was going through in order of multiple champions from the 70s up to the modern day and yeah. with Ferrari being yeah the the most winningest constructor prior to the Mercedes current run. Uh, And is is Williams still the second winningest over, because they've got nine? um, I think, I believe McLaren has, I think it's Ferrari, McLaren, Williams, isn't it? I thought it was Ferrari, Williams, McLaren. Yeah, you could be right. I'd have to check that one. And and then Mercedes has probably got to be fourth now, now that they have seven. Yeah, yeah, they're getting up there, aren't they? Yeah. And seven so, in a row, that's really something. <clears throat> the most fascinating story I heard around the, the championship victory for Mercedes was the theory that it's come about because Rosberg retired. <laughs> Wait, what? Repeat yeah. what you just said. So the key to seven championships in a row was Rosberg's retirement after he won his driver's championship. So basically, after we finally got one over Lewis at the end of 16, thanks to Lewis's inferior reliability and... And, and inferior driving, yes. <laughs> um, the this is a real was... quick... Let's just break the fourth wall for a minute. This, this is how Chris Roche and I first got to know each other, arguing the merits of uh, Nico Rosberg's driving. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> Lewis's engine blew up in Malaysia. Otherwise, he would have been world champion that year. And, and in which case, Ferrari may well have won the title in 17. That's the argument, is that the championship was so tight in 17 and 18 b- between Ferrari and Mercedes that if we'd still had Lewis fighting Nico, that, that maybe uh, Sebastian would have been able to nick in uh, and, and scoop a title or two. But in reality, Rosberg went uh, went off and did something else, and uh, allowing the team to to coalesce around Lewis, um, and and making a stronger championship fist of it. That's the theory. It's a, it's an interesting theory. I I think that uh, there are there are a couple of pretty big assumptions made, but uh, you know, uh, because let's not forget that as Rosberg and Lewis battled, they still most of the time finished one two well apart from when they took each other out exactly. like in spain exactly but, but look, look I've mean, got the nico uh-huh. is you let's let's dig into this for a minute i want to see how ipa i'm not i'm i'm half surprised that ipa chris isn't arguing that nico is the better driver between the two um but uh, nico was fantastically quick and i think nico <laughs> is probably probably a little bit quicker than Botas overall. There's, there's no doubt that Nico 
is quicker than the other Nico because he had definitely more podiums <laughs> and and wins. Ah, the Nico v Nico battle. Yeah, Rosberg quicker than Hulkenberg. I agree with you. So look, I'm going to run through the number of wins for each season since uh, Mercedes started on this championship run. So, so they thrashed everyone in 14, uh, 16 out of 19. In 15, 16 out of 19 again. 19 out of 21 in 2016. Then in 70, they only won 12 out of 20. <laughs> I and love o- how that's an only. Yeah, only. That's awful. That's almost not even 50, just over 50%. Yeah, barely. In, in 18, 11 out of 21, disastrous season. <laughs> and then normal service was resumed in 19 when they went on and won 15 out of 21. So, you know, it definitely, it's an interesting point. You know, they've been able to, they always wanted to make this big show of being equal, equally handed to both drivers, right? And they didn't really implement team orders and they let them battle out on track. And, uh, you know, let's say Hamilton did win 16, then, uh, you know, Nico would have been even more desperate to try and win in 17. And who knows what games he would have played. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, it's an interesting theory. Um, it's not my own under under the influence of IPA. This was actually introduced by a, a few individuals talking about it. They think that that's the reason why Mercedes have managed to, because the the theory is that Ferrari had a quicker car in seventeen and eighteen, and it was really it was the combination of coalescing around Lewis and Lewis's talent that managed to win the championship for Mercedes. But we'll let, but we'll, let's take this theory to the next step. Let's say Ferrari did win in seventeen or eighteen or both. Mm-hmm. And then, then, then it was proven that they had an oil burner. Oof, yeah. Would it would it still have been? Oh, no harm, no foul. Just don't <laughs> just turn it off. I mean, what kind of political battles would we have been in in Formula One if if Ferrari had that illegal engine and had won the championships? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, obviously they were probably entirely legal in 17 and 18, right? It was just 19 when they seemed to have a massive speed advantage in the straights that uh, that suspicions were aroused. But, so here's uh, my here's my theory. Had mm-hmm. Rosberg stayed, he would have been at least <laughs> two or three time champion because <laughs> because Ferrari would have won the championship and then been disqualified because of their oil burner. And Nico would have been the better man, and they and and Nico and uh, Hamilton would be on par for championships. How about that? See, well, Lewis didn't have dire reliability problems in seventeen and eighteen, though, so he would have obviously won because every time, you know, they had equal equipment and equal reliability, Hamilton normally won, right? Except when Rosberg was faster than him, which happened on numbers of occasions. And I feel like we're back at Hatchy all over again. <laughs> 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 the pandemic hasn't happened yet. I'm in PR, and Rosberg is head of Hamilton. So let me get this straight. So, so Hamilton with 93 wins now uh, is actually an inferior driver to Nico Rosberg. Is that what you're saying? Let's I just think get that this on tape. You and I can both agree. I'm not recording this on a tape, sir. <laughs> um, I think we can all agree that. Jack Villeneuve was certainly quicker than both of them because he didn't have any of these problems. And he was an IndyCar driver. His biggest problem was that his overalls were two sizes too big. Exactly. Exactly. The aerodynamics of his racing suit were atrocious. Oh, dear. All right. So let's let's um, talk silly season a little bit before this goes totally (laughs) sideways. 
So, so hang on. So Botas with debris in his car, still the second quickest car on the, in the field. I mean, how bad is the aerodynamics for everybody else? What are they doing clouding around? I mean, seriously. Mercedes ha- well, well, hold on, though. Mercedes has a team of 1,000 people. Uh-huh. Working on every what? detail, and they have Lewis Hamilton giving him praise every time. What we were talking about earlier, I don't. I think. I think. No, no, but it's, it is a serious point. So you got Bottas scooping up bits of Ferrari at the end of lap one, yes, which 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 made his car slower, and it was slightly slower than Verstappen's Red Bull, but everyone else was still slower than than a, than a hampered Bottas in a in a damaged Mercedes. That's pretty worrying. I think, for the rest of the field. And which is why we should pay close attention to Ross Barton, certainly next year, as we get into the final season before the 22 car comes. Since we've been talking about it more than usual, Formula One has a lot they could learn from IndyCar in terms of getting better racing and, uh, you know, having the cars being less aerosensitive to traffic. But uh, that's another discussion. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave that there as an appetizer to bring up for th- for a later podcast. Silly season. Uh, you and I had a discussion about should Haas get rid of one or both of their drivers, and we had this back and forth. And you made a pretty strong argument that Kevin Magnussen was quite good, uh, but he is now he's now been fired. <laughs> so, Indeed he has. so and he's going IndyCar apparently. Well, good for him. Good for him. I'm sure he'll dominate because those IndyCar amateurs won't know what to do with him. How do you feel about Haas's decision to uh, lose both drivers? Over the years, most teams have discovered that when you lose both drivers and you bring two, two brand new people in, you tend to go backwards. I have no idea why they didn't keep one or the other, at least for one season. So to me, that that is that's going to come back and bite them because you have no continuity right you know where Grosjean and Magnussen are relative to each other and you know what the pace of the car is so you bring in someone new you bring in someone like Mick Schumacher which I think we'd all be you know excited about and and you you put them against the known quantity one or the other I mean everyone I think most people agree that Grosjean's pretty quick and Magnussen's been there and thereabouts they're both good racers so that's a very good, you know, reference point to judge uh, a new driver against. The, the, what they've done is put themselves into the same situation as Williams, where you have two drivers. You don't really know how good either of them are because they're both rookies. We know Russell's quicker than, than both of the other two, but we still don't really know how good Russell is because he doesn't really have a reference point. So I and, and then from an engineering perspective and the challenges they've had in setting up their car and getting the tires to work, you're losing all that history, and you're going to have new drivers, new, new, not, uh, unused to Formula One, the tracks, the tires, everything, not able to give the engineers the right feedback. I think that's a, that's a big mistake, and I would have, you know, maybe there's still a chance that Perez or Hulkenberg will be hired at Haas, but that's not what I'm hearing is going to happen. But that would make a lot more sense than bringing in two complete rookies. Well. There is a silver lining to it, though, because one of those two rookies may be Mick Schumacher. Yeah, and I think that would be cool, but uh, but the other rookie, I'm not sure, deserves a chance, does he? Do you have the names that are being thrown, bandied around? Well, yeah, I, he it is um, uh, uh, 
Nikita Mazepin, and I'm sure I'm That's right. butchering the pronunciation. But uh, yeah. So I, what does he have that other F1 drivers don't have? Yeah, money. Potential money. Well, he has I a mean, rich dad. Yeah, I mean, but the, it's becoming the rich dad formula. It really has. I mean, I'm truthfully think about that. That there's. I, it's not like Formula One used to be uh, for the middle class, and now it's become a rugby sport or anything like that. That's not new or anything. But anyway, let let me get. Here's what I think. I think that Haas, for financial reasons, made the decision they did. Think about it this way: they are they are staying attached to Ferrari so that they can continue to have a lower cost way of staying current with regulations. So they're taking a Ferrari junior driver, most likely I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and limb and say most likely Mick Schumacher. Mm-hmm. And and then someone else is coming with money. So they have a driver that's paying for the seat and another driver that's tied to their technical supporter, Ferrari, it's lower cost for them. This is Haas running Formula One for a lower price point. I think it's purely financial. I mean, you could argue that Haas is now the slowest team in Formula 1. I mean, they they do have three more points than Williams. But the last couple of races, the Williams, particularly in Russell's hands, been a fair bit quicker than the Haas cars. So that's a worrying that's a worrying trend for Haas. And you would have thought that coming, you know, 7th, 8th or ninth in the championship is better than coming 10th and would offset whatever money Mazepin's bringing. I have no problem bringing in a talented rookie. You know, if Schumacher wins the F2 championship, he deserves to be promoted and you definitely have a seat for him. But put him against, a rep, you know, a known reference point, a safe pair of hands, someone who's got some experience. You know, and if, you, if you've had enough of Grosjean and, and uh, Magnussen, then by all means bring somebody else in, but bring someone else in with some experience. Um, and it's just as, you know, unfathomable as, as Alfa Romeo's decision to stick stick with their two drivers. I mean, I don't think Giovinazzi deserves another run. Do you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, that one's tougher for me. I, I think Giovinazzi, no, you, no, I don't think he deserves. I think I would much rather just as a friend, I would much rather have Perez have a Formula One seat than Giovinazzi. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm glad Kimi's sticking around. I think we all like Kimi, but put some. And, and put Kimi a, is still proven awfully quick, as we talked yeah. about in Portimao, sixteenth exactly. to six on the first lap, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and you know he finished ninth in Imola and had a good old chuckle when Russell stuck it in the wall. So <laughs> That's right. you know the benefit of experience, right? So um, yeah, I, there's some weird things going on, and. and you know, it culminated in Russell being dumped from Williams in favour of Perez, which it appears now hasn't happened. Russell's going to stay at Williams, but because that would have been a shame. I mean, look, I don't disagree that it, Formula One will be a little poorer without Perez in the field next season, if that's what happens, because he's certainly a better driver than Stroll, Giovinazzi um, and Mazepin. So you want the best drivers in the world in Formula One cars, don't you? And if we get into a pretty sorry situation where you could argue maybe half the field is not that great. Well, we because we, we, we have now here's a name that's escaping me. The other Williams driver, uh, uh, not Russell, of course. Latifi. Yeah. Latifi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Stroll and Latifi. They're definitely they're bringing money. And that's what got him into the sport. I mean, they are representing North America, of course. 
Please do not. First of all, they're representing Canada, so do not, do not do that to me. Oh, is this the best that this continent can provide, right? Oh, God. <laughs> Choking down a little vomit right now. No, actually, that's good. I am, I am not being serious, but which U.S. driver would you would you rate above those two to put straight into F1? Because I can't think of a name, so by all means, oh, give me one. Uh, Alexander Rossi, <laughs> Joseph Newgarden. Okay. 100%. I, I think that, uh, okay, Rossi, he's the most recent American. Rossi's a good driver, yeah. yeah I'll give you that. Most recent, and he was very competitive in the Marussia compared to his teammates. Yeah, that's in, a good point. In the five Grand Prix that he had. And he's, done and he's feisty in IndyCar as well. He's always the one entertaining me when I watch an IndyCar race. Ex- exactly Honestly. right. He, he's very quick. This He had a rough season this year. Um, I think I, I think today Scott Dixon would still be quite good. Now, how long? He's from, New Zealand. How he's from New Zealand, though. I will, I will let you know. You can't claim him as one of yours. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's living. He's lived in Indiana. Oh, okay, all he's right. He's lived in Indiana for half his life. That's got to be worth half points. We got to get something does, out of that. Doesn't sound like a local, though, does he? When I hear him speak, he still doesn't sound like he's from Indiana. Well, it's funny. It's funny how these things work. But uh, yeah, eh, okay. But anyway, I'll stick Joseph Newgarden, Alexander Rossi, absolutely. And uh, there's probably as much as I am not really enthusiastic to say it. There's probably a couple of cup drivers that would be quite good if they went a different direction, uh, you know, because uh, uh, NAS- when I say cup, I'm referring to NASCAR Cup Championship, which is the top championship in NASCAR. Those guys are quite, quite, quite good. And uh, they just, they're just they just much, much better at turning left. So we'd have to get them trained to turn right a little bit. That's all. I mean, I... I- would love to have, you know, one or two really competitive U.S. drivers in Formula One. I think it would be really good for the sport in this country. Um, I think it would uh, generate more interest. And, um, it, you know, it is ridiculous that there isn't a U.S. driver in the field, honestly. Yeah. Especially when you've got the likes of Latifi and, and Stroll in there. Exactly. Right. unacceptable. And, you know, Stroll, uh, you know, Latifi, I don't know, but Stroll, he's raced... He raced at the 24 Hours of Daytona and uh, other things like that. And it's not like he was some standout performer there. Do you know what I mean? And that's not fair. That's not his main discipline. You wouldn't expect him to be quite as competitive. But, you know, uh, you know, Ricky Taylor, uh, he's a top, top sports car driver. And he's done some indie car tests. I bet, you know, he's a little, probably a little old to do it now. But I think... Had he been given different opportunities, I think Ricky Taylor would have the core talent to do it. So I think much more of Formula One is about going through the Formula One development process and um, having the funding throughout. Because, you know, Rossi effectively did. And I think Rossi absolutely has the talent. There's another guy, um, Spencer Pickett. He's an IndyCar driver. And uh, he, he's never been with a top IndyCar team, but he's had some standout performances here and there. And I think given the opportunities, he'd do really well as well. He also raced in Europe a bit. So, I mean, is there, are there any U.S. drivers, you know, in F2 or uh, other formula that might be on the, on the 
ladder to F1 with the right sort of backing, or is is that just not happening at the moment? It's I, there's not names that I know of off the top of my head. I'll be honest. That doesn't mean they're not there. Sadly, I mean Red Bull at one point seemed very keen on promoting U.S. drivers, right? We had Scott Speed and part of the as part of yep, the Red Bull yep. Junior. They, they very much wanted to get an American in Formula One. They had they had Danny Sullivan, who is an Indy IndyCar veteran and Indy 500 winner, uh, uh, as leading that project, and that is what that is the series that is the thing that got Scott Speed into uh, a Formula One car for what whatever it was a season and a half. Yeah, but again, I, the the they were kind of jumped in. I know a couple people that uh, ended up in that series and it was you know a, a friend of mine a good friend of mine actually who is now a bmw factory driver john edwards he was in that program and he raced um he raced italian the italian karting championship and then he did formula bmw and some other things and then for whatever reason i don't know exactly what it was it, uh, red bull didn't continue with him and he ended up going on. He won the Toyota Atlantics Championship, which at the time was one of the main feeders to IndyCar. But the money just wasn't there. And uh, BMW picked him, picked him up as a factory driver. And he's since won the 24 Hours of Daytona and has a nice Rolex. And uh, obviously done very well in sports cars. So, Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, the, unfortunately, there are at least... Looking down the 20 drivers that are in Formula 1 this season, there are, I'd say, six, maybe even seven drivers that you'd have to question whether they're really worthy of the seat. Which is a shame. You don't want it to be that, that way. And I think it didn't matter when the old days when there was 26, 28 cars on the grid. You know, you could have a few... Uh, also rounds right people make weights whatever you want to call them but yeah. with with just 20 cars it feels like you need you really need 18 to 20 of the best drivers that really deserve to be there and for, and the trend is going in the wrong direction isn't it it's, it's being driven by who you know or what money you can bring yeah no More i think that's things. right so let's let's can we just skip back before we before we end here the russell spin under a safety car he's not the first to do it he won't be the last uh, he was. He did a brilliant job to get the Williams into tenth, and yeah. and there does seem to be genuine signs of life with him and the Williams. They they do seem to be getting ahead of both the Alfa Romeo and and the uh, the Haas car. But why on earth was he trying to do what he was doing at that point? I mean, he talked about trying to maintain tire temperature, but here's the thing for me: he was the first car behind the safety car, right? So at, at some point, they were going to let him pass the safety car to get to their natural position within the field. So why on earth would he not just get his tyres up to temperature when he got that opportunity? He didn't need to keep warming them at that point. He wasn't going to restart the race. Do you remember, I think it was Mugello, uh, the first of three Italian Grand Prix, uh, yeah. where uh, Russell... At one point, was in ninth place, well into yeah. the ra well, well into the race, and he bungled the start. The, re the yeah, the, the, the one the of the many restart. restarts. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that we've seen a growing trend here where uh, Russell, it's like um, 
you know, every time he has an opportunity to score points, the nerves get to him and he starts, you know, having judgment errors. And every time that happens, the next time the opportunity presents itself, it's that much more severe, the pressure. Do you see what I'm getting at? And I think he might be suffering from the anxiety of not screwing up and that is inevitably what's causing him to make these mistakes because they're they're not it's not like he was close and made and just like somebody got the better of him. i mean they're just they're silly errors yeah i mean look i remember chuckling over grosjean when when he did that a few years ago i mean that is a pretty basic error nobody else made it nobody else came close to making it and th- yeah that 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 was poor i have to say there is some question marks over his race racecraft and his and his mental approach in in a pressure situation which is not a good sign for his career because the pressure only ramps up from here doesn't it yeah yeah exactly right but i think i think once he gets through and actually gets something then that'll go right away and he'll be just fine so with luck that will happen sooner rather than later and then he can move on I you know I think we're still at the stages of his career that could that could just be a little blip early on as mm. opposed to some frightening trend that he needs to worry about you know uh Felipe Massa early in his career which has shown promise showed promise but had a lot of DNFs and things like that and then he went on to be he went on to win several grand prix and obviously oh, was- get extremely close to the championship in 2008 there was a world champion for about 35 seconds. Exactly right, yeah. <laughs> it, he holds a record for having the world championship for the shortest amount of time. <laughs> so I, I think the uh, the season as a whole, though, is is the, the battle. There's some great battles in the championship, both in the drivers and the constructors. I mean, the, the Renault-McLaren racing point battle for third is fascinating. There's one point separating the three teams. Yeah, and and it you know Stroll's not performing in the in the racing point. The McLaren seems to be getting slower. Uh, Ocon breaks down every race. It appears so. Ocon's he, your he, favorite driver currently, obviously. <laughs> Ocon is um, your twenty twenty Rosberg. Well, I have to say, I I thought Ocon and, and Ricardo were going to crash into each other a lot because Ocon has a habit of doing that with his teammates, and they haven't done it yet this season, have they? <laughs> So that surprised me. I was I was expecting that, but uh, yes. yeah, it's hard to call who's gonna who's gonna win that that race for third in the constructors. Honestly, yeah, which is cool to say. And yet, at the exact same time, um, we're recording this the Friday before the Turk the twenty twenty Turkish Grand Prix, where it's pretty likely that Lewis will claim his seventh championship. It's going to happen almost inevitably. Lewis is um, uh, eighty five points to the good with four races remaining. How do you feel about that? Well, I agree it would be a bigger shock if he didn't win it than if he did. Um, and I, you know, I, it, it'll be as momentous as when he equaled Michael's race win record. I mean, it's uh, seven, seven titles. is astonishing. Um, so, yeah, it'd be great. I'm, I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Do you think it's going to happen in Turkey? No, I don't think it'll happen in Turkey, but I think it'll happen. It'll happen in the next couple for sure. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I have a feeling that it's going to be in Bahrain. Uh, it's going to be a post Thanksgiving 
celebration um, for us American folk, not a pre-Thanksgiving. No, wait, hold on. Hold on. No, 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 no. I think there's a good chance he will win it. Well, I, I think don't there's think... a good chance he will win it in Turkey. Okay. Um, well, yeah, if he wins, he gets the fastest lap. It doesn't matter where Botas finishes, right? He'll be he'll be champion. But I don't think, I don't. You know, no, we no, got no, to the point. So mm-hmm. it's it's after at at the end of this, it's if he's got seventy eight points or more, he's got it. Mm-hmm. He's currently eighty five ahead. Right. So he's got to outscore him by seven. Yeah. So, so Botas has to outscore. Botas has to outscore Hamilton. You're right. Yeah, if Hamilton beats Botas, so it's if, Ham- done, if Hamilton wins the race, that's 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 it. Yeah, but I don't you see. I think we got to the point of the season where we're not going to have Mercedes winning. I think there's a real good chance we'll see probably Max win this weekend. Ooh. I mean, you can see Mercedes made the statement that they've stopped developing the twenty chassis, and you could see that Red Bull are closing in. And uh, and interestingly enough, as you pointed out, with Charles's good performances, so a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I think that, you know it's going to be a much tougher fight for Mercedes to win the remaining four races. And if you know if they're not winning, then there's a good chance Bottas can keep the championship alive. Well, I think that is a good place to end the bold prediction that the championship's <laughs> not over just yet. For now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars, where you should definitely leave comments about how much better... IPA Chris is the non-IPA Chris. Ah, what a joy it was to talk, Chris. Thank you so much. Are you going to say anything? (laughs) IPA Chris has gone quiet. IPA Chris is face down. (laughs) (laughs) No, we lost phone connection there, but no. Thank you, Robin. (laughs) I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Oh, man. (laughs) 